You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verse 11. And Father, just uh, I cry out to you again just for this Bible study and this service with this group of people. And uh, Lord, just that you would do an incredible work here. Um, even as we just, we read the words of Jesus. Man, I love those words written in red. Uh, I know that the whole of scripture is inspired, but there's just something about hearing the very words in, in your heart that you spoke while you were uh, living on earth uh, as a man. And so uh, just do more than we could ever ask or think for your glory in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Well, in verses 11 through 27 of Luke chapter 19, uh, we come across a parable, uh, the parable of the ten minas. Now, the word parable is, is to, it speaks of to cast aside, kind of like casting aside seed. And, it, and they're story type uh, um, uh, I would say story type stories, but that would be a given, wouldn't it? They're story type stories to help illustrate uh, a spiritual truth. Um, uh, it's another way to put it is allegory, you know, a, a visible symbol representing an abstract idea. And so it's important to remember that as you study the parables. There's a lot of meat within the parables, but if you try to dissect like every number or every verb, a lot of times you're, you're, you're going to get confused, you're going to go crazy, and, uh, and there may not be explanations for that because that wasn't the point of the parable in the first place. Uh, so as you read the parables, uh, it's just important to keep, uh, or, or as the saying goes, the main parts are the plain parts, and the plain parts are the main parts. So just, you know, keep it simple, stupid. It's the KISS method. And, uh, and so we'll do just that as we study this parable today. So verse 11, did he just call me stupid? <laughs> Who was I looking at when I said that? Sorry, Mark, I was just messing with you. Um, uh, verse, verse 11 there. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom would appear, appear immediately. And so as we talked about a couple weeks ago, one thing that's incredible about Luke's gospel is three different times it says that Jesus set his eyes to Jerusalem. With a purpose, he was going to Jerusalem. And everything about Jesus' ministry, everything about Jesus' life, everything about the contract between God the Father and God the Son and him coming to earth, becoming a man, uh, centered around this point, going up to Jerusalem where he was going to offer his life as a ransom for many to pay the price for the sins of the world. And so it's a very sobering time as Jesus for the last time uh, heads down, you know, from the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, follows the Jordan down, hits Jericho along the banks of the Jordan, meets blind Bartimaeus like we studied a couple weeks ago, heals blind Bartimaeus, uh, meets Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and, and goes into his house and dines with him. And then he stops moving south and he begins to head west towards Jerusalem. 
And he begins to make the ascent with the disciples up the hill, up that holy mountain to the Mount Moriah region where Jerusalem is built. And so as he's on his way, uh, you know, there's a there's an incredible scene walking this road towards Jerusalem as two million people, two million Jews flocked into Jerusalem for Passover And out of those two million people, there were multitudes of that group within that group who were followers of Jesus. They'd follow him around. Some followers in the true sense of the word, they've laid their lives down for his name and to serve him and follow him. And then others who simply were looking for a sign or a wonder, the next great circus act that he would perform. And so as he's on his way, he notices that the tension is high Uh, because people are thinking that as he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to set himself up as the king of Israel. He's going to destroy the Roman army. He's going to lead a political coup and he's going to, uh, destroy the Romans and, and be that king that they've waited for ever since the days of David. And so he gives this parable specifically to those people that thought he was going to set his kingdom up here on earth. And so as we read this parable of the ten minas, it's in response to people who expected it to set his kingdom up right then. You know, they were all on their way to Jerusalem and Passover was near. And as people would remember how God miraculously and supernaturally uh, delivered them out of the hands of Egypt and out of the hand of Pharaoh, it kind of stirred up a revolutionary heart within people. You know, it's like the 4th of July when those fireworks are going off and you're singing God bless America, man, you're ready to give your life right then and there for this great nation. That's what's happening here is, you know, people are starting to get their swords and their pocket knives and put, you know, and get ready. When's the coup going to happen? I'm going to fight, you know, or whatever. Let's help Jesus set up his kingdom. And that wasn't at all what Jesus was doing. In fact, just a couple chapters ago, Jesus says, we're on our way to Jerusalem and the son of man is going to be betrayed and he's going to be scourged and he's going to be delivered up and he's going to be crucified. That's me. I'm going to be crucified. But don't worry. After three days, I'll rise from the dead. And it says that the disciples didn't understand what he was saying. You know, Pew, pew. You know, words are just totally bouncing off their thick head. They have no clue what he's saying. And so he's like, well, you know, I got a bunch of people that are so confused. How can I help describe to them that it's not going to happen today? Well, maybe let's tell it in a story. You know, come here, little kids. Let's tell you a very simple story. Thomas, the train engine, loved all of his little friends. And No, that's basically what he does here. He tells them a story to help simplify it for them. And so in verse 12, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to, re- to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so in this parable, he's talking about himself. He is the nobleman who's going to a far country to receive the kingdom. And if you were to go to a far country, that would mean that there wouldn't be an immediate return, especially back in those days as you would, you know, walk on foot. They didn't have the jet plane that would bring you home the next day. I'm going to a far country is what he's saying. I'm not going to have an immediate return. And, um, you know, Jesus says there in, in the book of John that I go to prepare a place for you. You know, he, he's in heaven. He's, prepare, he's preparing a home for us in, in heaven. 
And he's going to return, he says. If I wasn't going to return, I'd let you know. I'm going to return. And man, I just look forward to that day when he returns. You know, Jesus tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some consider slackness. You know, he's faithful. He's going to return. But it wasn't going to all happen right then and there, that weekend, that Passover week there in Jerusalem. It was going to be in the future, is what he's saying. And so... Uh, He called 10 of his servants, verse 13, and delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So each man received a minus, kind of a weird name for money, huh? Minus. I don't want that kind of money. I want pluses, you know. Um, but so he gives out minus. Each man received about a month's wage. Now, you know, that's not what's significant about this parable. Wow, a whole month's wage at one time? That's not what's important about this. But something to know and to mark in your Bible is that each man received the same amount. Each man received the same amount of this. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that Jesus gives to his followers that is the exact same? What is it that he gives to his followers that is the exact same? What is it that all of us are in the same boat with? Certainly not physical stuff, right? You know, I mean, we all look different. We all different sizes and shapes, certainly different talents. You know, some can play instruments, some can, you know, work machinery, some can do addition and subtraction, you know, you know, we all have different giftings, gifts of the Holy Spirit. What is it that he gives us the exact same amount of the gospel? We each receive the gospel. Romans tells us he's dealt to each of us a measure of faith. We've all been given a commission, a responsibility to invest in the kingdom Each one of you, and and myself included, we're responsible for our own story, our own testimony. And we're to take that to our own sphere of influence and the corners that we meet in, the people that we have relationships with, our areas of involvement, our hobbies, the people that we're around. We're to invest the gospel that the Lord's given us to those people. And we've all been given the same amount of that gospel. Well, in verse uh, 14, his citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him saying, we won't have this man rule over us. That's speaking of the Jews. Within the next few weeks, we're actually going to read about the Jews rejecting him there in Jerusalem. You know, today we're going to read of them calling out, you know, Hosanna as they cheered him as he came into into Jerusalem. But within a week's time, they'll have killed him. They've rejected him. And so uh, verse 15, so it was when he returned Having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And so after he's gone to this far country, he will return having gained that kingdom. Now, now what part of history is this in? Well, believe it or not, we're living between verse 14 and 15. Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and he went to prepare a place. Peter tells in his, in his glorious gospel message in Acts uh, chapter 2 that Jesus ascended and is at the right hand of the Father in the throne. 
He's the king. He's inherited his kingdom by rising from the dead. And we see during the book of Revelation that he's going to come back and he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he's going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so when he comes and, and for us believers in, uh, that live in this day and age, you know, one day we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account of that treasure that he's given us, that treasure of the gospel. Every one of us, whether you're young or old, you know, agile or docile, you know, we're all going to give an account for what did you do with that treasure of the gospel? And so we see here, he's going to have each one of these 10 servants come before him and nine out of the 10 are similar uh, instances, but one is different out of all of those 10. And so, you know, the first one comes verse 16, then came the first saying, master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. So your mina has earned 10 minas. I want you to get your pen or, you know, your sharp fingernail or whatever it is you have. And I want you to underline that verse. I want you to underline that section. Your mina has earned 10 minas. Because in this case, we're talking about the mina being the gospel, you know, and the responsibility that we have to share the gospel. And what does it say? Your gospel has earned. Your gospel, your word has earned. In other words, your word does the work. You guys, evangelism and sharing our faith and spreading the gospel, it's not a labor that we do in and of ourselves, but it's a labor that the word of God does on its own because it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's the sword. It does all the work. We don't have to worry. You know, last week we had Bill James come from Agents of Christ. And he, you know, shared about and, and stirred us and encouraged us and spurred us on to go out on the street and to be witnesses and to open our mouths about Jesus at our workplace or at the schools that we're in or wherever it is. The gas station, just open your mouth about Jesus and see what will happen. And many of you, you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm so terrified. And I get that way too. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. And, you know, there were all these reasons. Why don't you share? You know, well, I'm afraid I won't know what to say. I'm afraid that I'll sound stupid. I'm afraid that I'll, you know, actually end up leading somebody astray rather than bring them to the Lord. I just don't know what, I don't know what to do. Hey, don't worry. Just be obedient to the commission that Jesus gave to us to go into all the world and make disciples. Just open up your mouth and let the word do the work. It's been said that we don't need to defend the gospel. We just need to unleash the gospel. You know, it's like if you have a pit bull dog or a big fighting dog, you know, and someone's coming to attack you, you don't defend the pit bull, you know, you, you unleash the pit bull and let the pit bull do all the fighting for you. You know, so often we're like, oh, I've got to defend the gospel, you know, stay back there, gospel, you know, and just let the gospel do its own work because it's, it's something that we just can't grasp. It's not smoothness of speech. Oh, if I just say it just right with just the right amount of suaveness, then someone will get saved. You know, that's not what it's about. It's a work of the spirit that happens. And I'm so glad because 
This homeboy can't talk, you know? (laughs) I'm so glad that it's a work of the Spirit and not a work of my flesh. Hopefully that's encouraging to you to know that you're just a conduit. You're just a vessel that the Lord wants to use. You know, I mean, we've got a whole lot of power coming into this room to run all of the lights and all that. But you know what? It all comes through conduit. You know, it, it all just has a path that it goes on. And you know what? We're that conduit. All we do is open up our mouths and the power comes forth. And, you know, that's why Paul prayed to the or asked the Ephesians. He said, brethren, pray for me that I might open my mouth and make known the mystery of the gospel. Because all you have to do is open up your mouth. I guarantee it. There's been so many times where, you know, I, I've taken high schoolers on missions trip and I've got 30 little eyes watching me. What's Rory going to do? You know, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, why is he locked himself in his hotel room? I can't come out. Okay. I don't know what I'm doing, you know, but it's like, okay, you know, I've led these high school kids to, to come to Brazil and to open our mouths about the gospel. I'm, I'm going to lead by example. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to say, but you know, I know Christ and him crucified and that's enough. And as I would go up to someone, I just, just open up my mouth and the words start coming. I'm just a conduit. I'm just a pipe. I'm just a vessel that, that is just supposed to open up the valve and let the Holy Spirit come out and speak. And you know, Jesus says that's what's going to happen. Three different times he says, when you're delivered up before men, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because in that very hour, the Holy Spirit will speak for you. In another instance, he says, at that very hour, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. And then in another account, it says at that very hour, uh, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance the things that you've learned. So don't worry about beforehand and premeditate what you're going to say. Of course, spend time with Jesus. Just grow in him. Learn his word. And as you do that, just naturally be that conduit that you're supposed to be and allow the gospel to flow forth from you. Just unleash it. Let the minus work for itself. You know, let the money work for itself. Uh, There's this show on TV right now on ABC called Shark Tank. And it's basically, there's a a table with six billionaires, you know, And, and they sit there and entrepreneurs and inventors come in and stand before them with their inventions or their business plan. And it's really fun to watch because there's all sorts of different inventions out there. And they're like, you know, here I am with wacky tobacco, you know, and I've got this really funny, you know, or I don't even know what, you know, they, whatever invention it is. And, you know, either they'll just get hosed and blown out of the water or they'll, you know, get this huge loan. But basically there's this one guy out of all these billionaires and he sits right in the middle and he's the biggest jerk out of all of them. And he just, he's always like, this is a waste of my time or something. But one thing he always says is, I want my money to work for me. He's like, my money Uh, each dollar is like a little soldier and I want it to go out and capture the enemy and bring back more soldiers. I want my money to work for me. I want my money to do the work. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know, the gospel does all the work. You know, all we have to do is be wise investors and invest the gospel. Tell people about the gospel. And so we see this first servant was very wise. He was a good steward with this treasure that his master had given him. In verse 17, he said, And well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little amount. 
have authority over 10 cities. You know, he was given a month's wage. That's how much money he was given. And now he's given 10 cities to rule over. That is quite the reward there. But, uh, but you do want to notice that there's this direct relationship with how much investment the man did and how much his reward is in the end. And, and in fact, look at um, verse 18. The second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Now, notice he doesn't say, you idiot. I just got done talking to a guy that... That's, you know, made 10 minas out of it. And you only made five. Oh, what a waste of my time. I'm sorry I even know you. But no, here's a guy. He's like, I was given a mina and, you know, I'm not as good at investing as this guy. You know, I'm no Donald Trump, you know, or I'm no Rockefeller, but I do know that I've been commanded to be a good steward of it. And I'm just going to do my best. And I'm just going to here, here you go, you know, and it made five. And though it was less than the other guy, he was still given an incredible reward. But the guy who did no effort that we're going to read about right here in verse 20, he said, another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not, what you did not owe. And so out of nine men that had been giving, giving an account, you know, one guy made 10, one guy made nine, one guy all the way down to the guy that made zero. He's the only one that came up with this excuse and put the blame on the master. This guy's a sham and he's not doing anything with the word. He's not doing anything with this talent or with this mina. In fact, he keeps, keeps it in a hanky or in a sweat cloth, which is ironic because he, he, hasn't sweat at all for the gospel. You know, like, well, I won't be needing this, so I'll just hide the money in it. And he invested nothing. He says, well, it's because I knew that you're an austere man or a severe man or a stern, hard man. People think that Jesus is a hard tax, ta- uh, task master, you know, that he gains while they work. But severe here, you know, it doesn't mean that Jesus is selfish because uh, the master in this parable admits, yeah, I am severe, but it doesn't mean that he's selfish or unfair, but rather that he's strict and that he holds to high standards. Now that's not the only thing about Jesus. You know, he does hold to high standards, but we're going to see he's a rewarder as well. He's generous. He's gracious. These guys made him 10 minas and he gives them 10 cities. That's extremely gracious. But this lazy servant never, never put any uh, effort into thinking about that, about this master's grace. And so if you'll flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, we see how our investment of the gospel, it directly re- uh, reflects on our eternal reward in heaven. Now, I'm so thankful that as a Christian... As someone who's found in Christ, I'll never stand before the great white throne of of judgment that you read about. We're going to read about a little bit later in Revelation chapter 21, because I'm a believer. The great white throne judgment is a judgment of condemnation to all of those who've rejected Christ. But I am going to study or study. I'm going to stand 
before the Bema seat judgment. Okay. Now the Bema seat judgment, it's not a judgment of condemnation where I'll be sent to hell, but it's a judgment. It's like a reward ceremony type judgment. And that word Bema speaks of rewards. And it's the same type of thing that like in the Olympics, how people are judged based on their performance and their, you know, you know, the little platform with the third place, first place, second place. That's the type of judgment that will, you know, will receive the things we've done in the body, uh, whether good or bad things that we've done to glorify the name of Jesus or things that we've done just for ourselves and things that we've just done for ourselves. They're going to pass away. Let's just read it. Verse uh, 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I'm a, I'm a carpenter, you know, or I'm a, I'm a contractor and I'm building you guys up. Well, I've already laid the foundation of your building. That foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation. There's no other name that the church can be built upon. But now you guys start building upon that foundation. And we're going to see what you can build on that foundation with. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he's built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through. So I always mess up yet. So as through fire. So we have a foundation in Christ and just picture yourself like a building that you're, you're building up. Your whole life, you're adding on to this building. And everything that you do for Jesus, you're building on your building with steel and gems and rock and things that aren't going to burn up because you know one day I'm going to pass through a fire, just a a quick judgment that's going to reveal what things I did for me or what things I did for Jesus. Everything you do for Jesus, it's steel, it's precious stones, it's gems. Everything you do for you, you know, you're building with straw you know, and paper mache, you know, and as you pass through that fire, it's going to burn up, poof, it's going to be gone. Uh, you know, imagine you're building, you know, and by the end of your life, you look like the scarecrow on the Wizard of Oz, you know, and you have to pass through this fire to just reveal what works you did on your own. Poof, you go through and there's like a, you know, I don't know, maybe you wore a cross necklace or something. I don't know, but that's like all that's left and, and you'll be saved, but you'll come through that fire smelling like smoke. You know, your eyebrows will be singed off. And for the rest of eternity, everyone will be like, were you in a fire? Um, you know, or, you know, you come through like, like a bedazzled tin man. You know, you come through and you're the tin man, you're, but you're like got gold and rhinestones and all that good stuff. And you come through the fire, ting, and you're just looking even better. The fire shined you up a little bit. And for the rest of eternity, we're going to have these rewards from our labor. And we're not going to keep them for ourselves. Look at me. Look at my nice reward. We're going to cast those rewards before Jesus for the rest of eternity. We're going to cast those crowns before him. And how sad will it be when, you know, when we or when friends of ours, 
that their whole life, they just spent it on themselves. And oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but it was just fire insurance for you, you know? And you get to heaven and everyone else has crowns. You know, the Bible says that we receive crowns as a reward for everyone who loves his coming, you know, for everyone who remains sexually pure, you know, for everyone that, that you've added to the kingdom, Paul says, it's like a, it's my crown. It's my joy and crown, the, the appearing of our Lord and savior. And so, you know, some of us, and I hope I'm one that in heaven, we're going to have so many rewards in heaven, so many crowns. We're going to have to like put our hands up and stack crowns up our arms and on our toes, you know, like I got so many crowns. Somebody help me with these. You know, we'll just cast those crowns before the Lord for all of eternity. But then there are people there and they're kind of naked and they're like, I don't really have anything. You know, I got to heaven, but, you know, I live my life for myself pretty much. And bummer, you know, still saved, which is great, but just missing out on, on reward. You know, there's just a really sobering statement that we only have one life to live and it soon will pass. And only what we've done for Jesus will last. And man, as I turned 28 last week, you know, I'm like, man, my life is just a vapor. <laughs> you know, man, I want just every hour of it, every breath that I take to be used for him. And so sadly, this man, you know, he was a poor investor in the kingdom. And uh, verse 22 So he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not just put my money in the bank that it might coming? I might have collected it with interest. You know, his own words condemned him. He didn't know his Miranda rights, you know. All right, right now you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you right now. And, uh, and yet he just blabbed his mouth and started accusing his master of being a severe man. And so something to take from this is that those who fail to do anything with their talent that they've been given or with the mina that they've been given, the resources they've been given, the opportunities, the gospel, the commission, if you fail to do anything with that, you'll fall under his hot displeasure. In verse 26 or verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take his mina from him and give it to those who have him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. It's the classic use it or lose it. You know, the fisher cut bait. You know, are you going to live for Jesus with all out reckless abandoned passion? Or are you going to just enter into heaven, you know, with the bare minimum? You know, it's such a sobering warning to us. And, 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 the, and the charge is there for us to be faithful. Just flip a couple chapters over in verse 16 to verse 10. Luke 16, 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? You know, in, in, in another gospel, Jesus says, you know, you've been faithful in a little. You know, I'm going to make you a ruler over many. 
You know, as a Christian, you are a servant. I don't care if you're in ministry in any capacity, if you have any official title from Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you are still a servant of Jesus. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that it's required of a servant that one be found faithful. You need to be faithful in the little things. Maybe you have a desire for ministry, maybe even great ministry. Well, let me tell you this, unless you're faithful in the little things, the things that you never get attention for, you never get accolades for, you never get pats on the backs, unless you're faithful in the toilet cleaning, you know, the graffiti removing, the chair stacking, the trash removal, the answering phones, the, you know, the little things, unless you're faithful in those, you'll never be made a ruler over many. And not only in ministry, but in other things in your life. In, in my school of ministry that I went to, there was a saying that I, I hold to, and that's that ministers need to be fat, faithful, available, and teachable. You know, you, you can be available. I, here I am. But if you're not teachable, the Lord's not going to use you in ministry, you know, until the day I'm 97 years old, you know, I'm going to be a teachable guy. I'll never forget in Corvallis, we have those little cards in the bulletin that, you know, would you like to learn more about Jesus? Would you like to be baptized? Would you like to this or that? Would you like to be discipled was one of them. And the oldest man in our church, Harry McKay, uh, was 93 years old, walked up the mountains all over Corvallis. Just, you never thought he was going to die, you know? And, and he's like, I would like to be discipled, you know? Like, you're 93 years old. You should be discipling all of us. But what a heart that at 93 years old, you're willing to be discipled. You know, he was a teachable man. A servant needs to be available. But really another, just, you know, the key, you need to be faithful. You need to be faithful. It's required of a steward that one be found faithful. And then verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. It's a frightening end to the parable. The enemies, those that rejected Jesus as ruling over them, will be slain before him. In this parable, he discriminates between the faithful and the unfaithful, the wise steward and the the foolish steward. You know, it might be scary here, but there's a, a devotion that the parable invites from us, that we would be wholly devoted over to him. But if you're the opposite of that, if you reject him, you'll be slain before him. You'll die before him. Revelation talks about a second death, a second death. I didn't know you could die twice. Well, let me tell you this. Jesus says that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. That baffled Nicodemus. What am I supposed to do? You know, climb back into my mommy's womb and pop out again. I've been born again, you know? And Jesus is like, no, you need to be born in the spirit. You need to be born in the spirit. And if you're born twice, a physical birth and a spiritual birth, you'll only die once. Heck, you might not even die once. You might get raptured, you know, or maybe like Elijah, a chariot of fire will come down and carry you away. Some, you know, if you're born twice, you'll only die once. But if you are only born once, a physical birth on your birthday, then you're going to die twice. You're going to die your physical death and they're going to put you in a coffin 
And then you're going to stand before the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 21 tells us, where the sea gives up its dead and Hades gives up its dead. And anyone who's rejected Jesus will stand before the great white throne of God and books will be opened. One of the books is the Lamb's book of life. That when you accept Jesus into your life to wash away your sins, it says that your name is written. My name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Rory Rogers. Maybe Rory Blake Rogers. Who knows? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That book will be opened. Another book that will be opened will be the law. The Ten Commandments. And actually, did you know there's, there's like 320 commandments? Yeah. Yeah, every one of us have broken a few of those. You know, and, and you're going to be judged on those, you know, how well did you keep the Ten Commandments? And you're going to be found a failure. James tells us if you keep all the commandments but break one of them, you're guilty of breaking all of them. Another book that will be open is a book of your good deeds. And we're going to find that your good deeds really weren't good. As Romans tells us that there is none good, no, not one, but every man seeks after his own self and his own pleasures. And so every single person who stands before the great white throne judgment is going to be condemned and be cast into the lake of fire. Their names aren't written in the Lamb's book of life. It's going to be a really sad day, that second death. But the good news, you don't have to be there. Today, you can yield to the grace, to the free gift of Jesus Christ. You can allow him to wash away your sins and create in you a new heart. You can be born again today and your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. And I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of the study today for you to just ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and your garments, which were once black, can be made white as snow. And you can be created anew for good works for his name. It's a beautiful good news, isn't it? I mean, it sounds bad. Just the, oh, going to hell, what? You know, that is bad. But there's the good news end of it too. I've got good news and bad news. What do you want first? Well, I gave you the bad news. Um, we're going to just read about the triumphant entry here. And we're going to close after, after that this morning. In verse 28, the triumphal entry begins. It's the final week of Jesus's life. The population of Jerusalem has swelled at least three times its normal size as those two million Jews come into Jerusalem for Passover. Roman soldiers are on guard against any uprising from the political zealots wanting to overturn that Roman rule there in Israel. There's soldiers everywhere. There's hustling. There's bustling. Uh, The marketplaces are packed. And Jesus says there, Uh, when he had verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany on the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? You shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Uh, So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. I like how Jesus said to the disciples, do this and it happened or do that and it happened. And I like how the disciples were obedient to do it. They didn't argue with them. They did it. Now I'm kind of a timid guy. 
You know, if we put it in modern day terms and the Lord's like, hey, I want you to go over to that car. I want you to break the door open. I want you to hotwire it. And if anyone comes up and says, hey, why are you stealing my Corvette? I'll be like, the Lord has need of it. You know, and drive off. You know, I have a little bit of a fear of grand theft arson or larson or no, I guess grand theft auto. That's what it is. Grand theft arson is also bad. Um, you know, and so here they go and they see the donkey. It's tied up there. Come on. Ding, ding. You know, they sneak over. Hey, what are you doing with my colt? Oh, the Lord has need of it. And they rode off into the sunset. No, but I love how the Lord told them to do something. And it seemed ridiculous. I'm sure it put a little bit of fear or awkwardness in their heart. But they were obedient to do it. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Solomon prays out that, you know, the Lord has given rest to his people according to all that he promised. There's not failed one word of all of his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Not one word of God's promises will ever fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, he says. And this is a really cool period right here because uh, this colt, this donkey, is prophesied of in Scripture. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. How special would you feel as this donkey having prophecy in scripture written about you? I'm in scripture, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, this colt had a specific purpose since the beginning of time. And if this donkey can have a purpose, if the Lord can use a donkey, he can use you. You guys know the story of Balaam's donkey. You know, Balaam was on his way in disobedience to the Lord. He was going to go curse Israel as a prophet. He gets on his donkey and he starts riding. You know how donkey's legs move really fast? You know, he's moving really fast on that little donkey. All of a sudden the donkey just stops. Urch, come on, donkey, come on, come on. Won't move, won't move. Starts spurring it. Yeah, mule, yeah. Won't move. It starts bashing up against the side of the walls around him. He's like, ah, hurting his leg. Finally gets out, gets his rod. He's just about to beat the donkey. And the donkey starts talking and delivers a message from the Lord. You know, maybe you're like, I can't deliver messages from the Lord. <laughs> you know, I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. I don't have enough biblical training. I can't open my mouth about Jesus. If the Lord can use a donkey to tell people, you know, the word of his truth, he can use you. Okay. Pretty sure the donkey didn't have a whole lot of Bible college experience. <laughs> you know, all of his class pictures. You know, the Lord uses the donkeys. He uses those that are trembling and fearful. Read the story of Gideon, you know, just, you know, the, the least in his father's house. But so Jesus says, you know, go get me a donkey. Now the kings used to ride donkeys. Deuteronomy chapter 17 forbid the kings from having horses in Israel or multiplying horses because they would begin to trust in these mighty steeds and the chariots and the power that was in them rather than trusting in the Lord. They were to trust in the Lord, not in horses and chariots. And David, he rode a donkey, but his son Solomon multiplied horses by the thousands and thousands. And he set up a cavalry within his army and he set up chariots. He went down to Egypt and he bought horses and he began breeding the horses in disobedience. And from that point on, all of the, uh, all of the kings rode horses. And so now as Jesus is just about to ride into Jerusalem, he's saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. 
I'm obeying the word and I'm coming in the same manner that David did. I'm the son of David. I'm coming lowly. I'm Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, lowly and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And I could see the temptation there to multiply horses. Not much of a donkey guy, to be honest with you. Much more of a horseman, you know? And uh, no one ever felt real studly as they rode into city riding on a donkey. But um, Jesus also rode something that was a picture of him. Donkeys are beasts of burdens. They're servants. And Jesus was here showing his willingness to serve. In fact, the key verse of Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a beautiful day. Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. Did you know that the triumphant entry was prophesied of to the day in Daniel chapter nine, almost 500 years before Jesus? In Daniel chapter nine, verse 25 and 26, it says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, a week back in that day and in the Hebrew language, it's not talking about Sunday to Saturday uh, or una semana, uh, but rather a week was the, the Hebrew word heptad which meant seven or a seven year period. In other words, I am four weeks old. I'm only two and a half years old. Okay. Uh, I'm four weeks old. I am four seven year periods old. I just turned 28 last Saturday. You can get up and leave now if you want to. I would not blame you. Um, so I am four weeks old. Okay. So Daniel prophesies of a period of 69 weeks, okay? 69 weeks or 69 seven-year periods, which is 483 years or 173,880 days on the Hebrew calendar or on the Jewish calendar. So from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, that day that King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, told Nehemiah, go and rebuild Jerusalem, that was March 14th. 445 BC, 69 weeks later, or 173,880 days later, was April 6th, 32 AD, when Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua Mashiach, a little bit of Hebrew there for you, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Who else did that that day, April 6th? Nobody. He's the one that fulfilled it to the day, fulfilling many prophecies, including Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. It's a beautiful thing. Daniel chapter nine is an incredible prophecy. We're going to go over it in a few weeks when we get to uh, the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21. So it's Palm Sunday. It's a special day here in modern days. It was Palm Sundays, but because of a sore throat, five-year-old Johnny stayed at home from church with a babysitter. When the family returned home, they were carrying several palm fronds. And Johnny asked his parents, what are those for? The dad very excitedly said, people held them over Jesus's head as he walked by. Johnny said, figures, I miss one Sunday and he finally shows up. <laughs> well, here on Palm Sunday, the Jews were like, he's finally showing up. 
here in Jerusalem, riding in on the donkey. Verse 35, then they brought the little colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. This is just a natural thing that these people did as they were excited. You read about it when King Jehu becomes king. They threw their clothes upon the steps uh, as he became king. You know, celebration, you know, that, that you just, you just can't, can't describe. And uh, spreading their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in the heavens and glory in the highest. And so uh, we have a song, a song here that, uh, you know, that the people shouted as Jesus came forth. Now, Jesus's triumphant entry was way different than any other that had happened there in Jerusalem. When a Roman soldier would make a triumphant entry, he'd come riding in on a chariot with two white horses prancing along. Behind him, he'd be dragging on a rope the the rulers of the other army, and they would be naked and in shame. And then behind them, the rest of the conquering army would follow. And so for a Roman to get a triumphant entry, he had to conquer 500, or excuse me, 5,000 men for this to happen. Here, Jesus comes in lowly, way different than any conqueror that we would ever think of, huh? Here comes Jesus. That little donkey moving his legs really fast, you know, trying to keep up with everybody. (laughs) Lowly, riding on the donkey. And no doubt it was quite the spectacle as the Roman soldiers looked at Jesus. Something different, they think. (laughs) Something quite pathetic looking as this man comes in looking like a servant. And the people shouted out. Psalm 118, verse 26. They'd shout that out. and, And there's different parts of it that each gospel shares. Uh, You know, Mark's gospel says that it says, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the difference there is you notice they're shouting about the kingdom of David being established. That's what they were excited about. In Matthew's gospel, they said, Hosanna to the son of David. What they were excited about was the throne of David being established. Not the fact that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to die and to give his life as a ransom for their sins. They were waiting for his kingdom to be set up right then and right there. Sadly, the majority of the people weren't setting Jesus up as king in their hearts, but only king, you know, the the king of the, the nation. And sadly, the same people that shouted Hosanna on Sunday by Friday were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Daniel's prophecy continues and says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that section there in Daniel, Messiah's coming. Here's to the day his coming. Five days later, he's going to be cut off, but not for anything he did. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be killed for the sins of the world. His agenda just wasn't their agenda here on Palm Sunday. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. 
You know, when, when the disciples were out in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and they were rocking around and they totally thought they were going to drown and die and Jesus is up on a little pillow taking a nice little kitty nap and water's coming on the boat and the disciples are like, Lord, get up. Don't you even care that we're about to drown? And Jesus stood up and he said to the wind and the waves, be still. And immediately there was silence there on the sea and it was calm and smooth as glass. And they said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. He's the same one that could make rocks cry out if he wanted to. You know, normal pastors would probably do some sort of rock music joke there. Um, But I have a little bit of class. And so uh, we're just going to move right along here. Um, Now, verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, Look back at verse 37. As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. Okay, now here's a picture from Israel. Uh, One day we'll go here. Uh, But this is the original trail, the original road. It's paved now. It's the original road that always has gone down from the Mount of Olives. You descend and it curves and you cross the brook Kidron. And then you begin to ascend again. That's Mount Moriah in the background. Uh, and that's the, the city of Jerusalem. And really the, the temple would have been right there within view back in the day. So, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's the same view that Jesus saw. You know, you can imagine the people laying their clothes out there. But as he drew even more near, perhaps he was starting to crest up the hill at this point to head into Jerusalem. He began to weep over the city. He began to weep over the city, saying, if you'd known, even you especially, in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Isn't that incredible that the God of the universe is a weeping God? His heart was broken over the lost condition of souls. He wasn't too proud to shed a few tears on his triumphal entry. You know, I've seen movies, and I think most of them are from like the 1960s, you know, but Jesus coming in on a donkey, you know, and all the crowd throwing the clothes down, and he's got this big fake Jesus smile on. You know, like this is, but did you ever think about how it says that he was weeping on his triumphal entry? You know, what's wrong with this guy? You know, they're like laying their clothes down, and he's going by, and he's just like sobbing. He's sobbing. His agenda wasn't their agenda. They were lost souls. They were rejecting him as the savior of their souls, which is what they needed. And because of that, that point on, they were blind. And five days later, they were going to yell, crucify him, kill him. We don't want him. We'd rather have the Romans, is what they would say. He was a weeping man. When was the last time you wept over the lost, over the souls that were going to hell? Man, I'll be honest, I'm You know, there's times that I do and there's long, long seasons that I don't. But you know what? I just pray that the Lord would make us compassionate people. You know, multiple times it says that Jesus was moved with compassion for the people. You know, just flip real quick over to Romans chapter nine. If you're, if you're a fast Bible flipper, I love Paul's heart in Romans chapter nine, just verse one. Usually I've got these verses written down, but just as we were worshiping, I was reminded, as Paul has said, Romans 9, 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief 
in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the faith. Paul knew that the Jews had rejected Jesus and he was so sorrowful that they were blind, that they were lost, that they were going towards hell, that he had sorrow and continual grief in his heart. And he would have even been accursed if he could. I will go to hell is what he says. I will go to hell so that my countrymen will be saved. But you know what? He didn't have to because someone else already died in Paul's place, died in our place, died in their place. He's Jesus and he was still rejected. Jesus, the weeper, the crier, always confused of is Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, always weeping over Jerusalem. You know, uh, he wrote the book of Lamentations or Lament to Cry. Um, and, and people thought, you know, maybe this is like Jeremiah or something. He's just always crying. Um, if you had known, even you, especially in you, this your day, the things that would make for your peace, this day prophesied in the book of Daniel, prophesied in Zechariah chapter nine, today's your day of your salvation, but you just won't have ears to hear for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave on you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because they rejected Jesus, not only is there not going to be a military coup, but the Romans are going to come and they're going to lay siege against Jerusalem. Josephus, a Jewish historian, uh, the, the Romans kept him alive to document all that happened in, in Israel during this conquest in 70 AD. And he wrote that by the time, uh, by the time Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, you would have never been able to tell that it had been inhabited by people. So sad that it could have been a day that their peace was made, but they were hard-hearted and they just wanted a political Messiah, not somebody to save them from their sins. And so that's where we'll close today. We'll go ahead and have the worship team come back up. As the worship team's coming up, you know, Matthew's gospel says that during the triumphant entry, the earth shook. The city shook, and that word in the Greek is seismos, or quake. There was a quake. And the people asked, who is this guy? And they answered, he's a prophet from Nazareth. That was their answer. You know, today you're asked, who is this guy that rode the little donkey into Jerusalem? Is he just a prophet to you? Is Jesus just a prophet Is he just a man, a nice man from a couple thousand years ago? Or is he king to you? C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. Yeah, he's got to be a liar. I am God. I'm going to die and raise from the dead. Well, he better have or else he's a liar or he's a crazy guy. Or he did die. He did raise from the dead because he is God and he must be Lord. What do you call him today? Lord, we just pray that right now that hearts would just, Lord, that they would cry out to you as the Lord of their life, as master, as everything to them. Lord, the the children of Israel had so many opportunities 
to bow the knee to you, Jesus, and to soften their hearts and to allow you to wash away their sins. And, but they were so proud and so hard-hearted that eventually you blinded them. And Lord, just in this room where the call to salvation is put forth, I just pray that right now, Lord, knees would bow to you, hearts would turn to you, and people would be saved. And today for you out there, just as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, today the call is made for you. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a prophet to you? Is he just a good man? Well, this good man declared himself to be God and staked all of his claims on that, on his raising from the dead. And he's risen. He's God today. And if you don't bow the knee to him, if you don't surrender your heart to him, if you don't surrender your life to him, then you're going to find yourself there on the great white throne judgment. And he's going to look through the book and your name won't be found. And Revelation 21 says so clearly that anyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. I just plead with you today that you would humble yourself and say, Rory, I need Jesus. I need that servant God who came in the form of a man, fully God yet fully man, and who was a servant and gave his life on the cross for my sins, to wash away my sins. Rory, I come today with garments black as coal. But today I need Jesus to wash me as white as snow. And if that's you today and you want your sins forgiven, washed away, remembered no more, if you want to give up your old life and be stand, uh, and stand and be counted for the name of Jesus, if you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven when you die, then I'm going to ask you to, to lift your hand up right now. And to just say, Rory, will you pray for me? Rory, will you pray for me that I can be saved? Will you pray for me that I could live a life for Jesus? Will you pray for me that my sins will be washed away? Rory, today I want to declare Jesus as not just a man and not just a prophet. But I want to confess him today as my Lord. Is there anybody out there today? Just between you and me, just and the Lord. You need to bow your knee to Jesus. You need to be saved. Hebrews says so clearly that today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.